Let's turn our Bibles together, shall we, to Psalm 119 as we continue our study through this wonderful poem, through this psalm. Um, and we come this morning to Psalm 119, verses 17 to 24. If you are able and willing, would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. <clears throat> Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on this earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Indeed, our God, may we see your word as beautiful as the psalmist and would you indeed open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things. Lord, would you teach us by your Spirit? Would your word meet with your Spirit and would you work in our hearts to mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be? Exalt your name in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Many of you know of John Bunyan and his Christian allegory, that familiar and wonderful work called Pilgrim's Pro uh, Progress. But in that, he writes of Christian's journey. And in part of that work, at one point, Christian is asking faithful of his journey. And of all the things and of all the people that he had met along the way. And faithful tells of meeting shame on the way. And he says this. He says, shame tells me what men are. But it tells me nothing what God or the word of God is. And I thought moreover that at the day of doom we shall not be doomed to death. Or life, according to the hectoring spirits of the world, but according to the wisdom and law of the highest. Therefore thought I, what God says is best, is best, though all the men in the world are against it. What God says is best. Oh, that that would be our hearts. Oh, that we would believe that. That we would trust Him at His Word like that. That, he would, that we would believe His Word rather than the world around us or, or the whispers or even the shouts of our own flesh as we walk through this life, as we walk through the journey of life, as we pilgrim along the way, as we encounter discouragement or disappointment. When we're met with sorrow, 
when we're met by fear, when we're met by despair, when we're met by shame. To whom and to what do we turn? Where do we run? R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Prayer of the Lord, he wrote this. He said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, His Word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity. And that power is focused on the Scriptures. As we turn to this next section of the psalm, the author turns his own and he turns our hearts once again to the Word of God, to that Word that is living and active, to that Word that is sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce bone and marrow, able to, to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. And as he journeys through life, as he meets persecution and disappointment, as he meets scorn and contempt, even as those around him plot against him, his help, his hope, his way, his protection is found in the Word of God. And so as we walk through this together, I want us to do this in this way. I want us to look at the plea, the path, and the protection of God's servant. Let's look first to the plea, shall we? And because the writer begins with a plea, doesn't he? Uh, and of course, as, as we've learned, we start this section afresh with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, consecutive. As we've learned, this is an acrostic poem, meaning that each section, but not only each section, but each first phrase, first word of each section begins with one of the consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we have made our way now to Gimel. We've seen Aleph, Bet, and now Gimel corresponds to our C, but of course it sounds more like our G. I just, our, our G. I learned this morning that in speech therapy, so where somebody came up to me after the service and said that's because the C and the G actually, they, they come from the same way in our throats and in our mouth. They're related, and now I can't remember the word that she told me, but it's actually something in speech therapy. The two are related, C and G. When you make the sound K and G, one is voiced and the other one's not, but other than that, they're exactly the same. So it's actually interesting that the gimel responds or corresponds to RC, but that was free. But back to here. For, for us, why does this matter? Because if we were to spell Gimel, uh, the letter, the Hebrew letter, if we were to spell it in the Hebrew, it would be Gimel, Mem, and Lamed. Or corresponding for us, it would be G-M-L, Gimel. Uh, but interestingly, it's the same Hebrew spelling for the word that we translate bountifully the way that this particular section of the psalm begins. Bountifully. And that's the plea of the writer. That God would deal bountifully with him. What does that mean? Well, it means simply this, that he desires God's favor. 
He wants the blessing and the favor of, of God and the goodness of God poured out on him. He wants it for his life. After all, who wouldn't want that? I mean, he recognizes that all good things come from the Lord. And if there is to be any favor, that, that comes from the hand of the Lord. And as Christians, we pray the same, don't we? Not only do we understand it, but we, we pray the same. It's, and it's good and right to do so. To pray for God's favor. To pray for God's blessing. But I think sometimes that we, we actually view that as presumptuous. Or maybe unspiritual to pray for God's goodness. That my prayers need to be somehow more theological, more spiritual than that. Rather than just praying for God's goodness. Or, or, or praying that God would deal bountifully with me and my family and for my children. But brothers and sisters, isn't God a God who, who loves his children? Isn't God a God who, deals, uh, who does good to and for us? But still yet, I think we struggle with this. And, I, and we often think it's unspiritual or presumptuous because, not because of God, but because of the condition of our own hearts. That is to say, too often... We define God's favor as things that we want and we desire. We're either asking for those things that satisfy the longings of our own flesh, or we're asking for things that are independent of God's will for us. Sometimes it's as if we pray, Oh Lord, my will be done without any thought to His. But we're, inst we're instructed to pray, aren't we? Thy will be done, not my will. Part of the Christian life, part of sanctification, part of growing in faith, part of growing in grace is our wills being brought in line with His will. That's part of sanctification. If you have needs and desires and hopes and dreams, yes, Bring them to the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, not only is there nothing wrong with that, but we should. We should bring them to the foot of the throne. But we should do so, as our shorter catechism says, as an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. You see, the psalmist here, the writer here, he's not... He's not treating God as a genie in a bottle, just granting our wishes. That if you rub it the right way, then we'll get three wishes or three answered prayers. But he's coming to the Lord asking in accord with the will of God. Because he's not merely asking for physical or earthly blessings here. And again, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But he's not talking about God's bounty that's reserved in the physical realm for things that we can touch, for things that we could play with, for things that we could drive, for things that we live in, or for things we spend, or for things that we can leverage for position and prominence in this world. He's speaking about the bounty of life. The fullness of life. Not just things. He's pursuing that truly blessed way. 
that truly happy way that he's spoken of already in those first two sections. A happy life. A whole life. A life of joy and of peace and satisfaction in the midst of life circumstances, whatever those might be. And we say, well, how do you know that, Chris? How do you know that's his heart? Well, because look at the purpose. Look what he says. He says, that I may live and keep your word. Oh, again, that that would be our heart. Lord, bless me so that I may live and keep your word. That's my hope. That's my heart. Well, that was his heart. He's he's not looking to the so-called treasures of the world, but he's, he's looking to that which truly gives life and hope. And doesn't that point us forward to the Lord Jesus? I wonder for how many of you that is... We read that section there and we think about where the psalmist is moving us. If, if any of it took your heart to the same place it did mine. Where Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. And Satan comes to him after 40 days of fasting. And he says to him, he says, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember that? And remember how Jesus responds. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Satan comes a second time, doesn't he? And again, Jesus responds with God's word. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he comes a third time. A third time. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. As if he had the power to grant such things. And Jesus says, once again, responding with the word of God. He says, be gone, Satan. Be gone. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Jesus does perfectly what we so often fail to do. He rejects the lie of the enemy with all of its false promises of satisfaction and glory. And he perfectly trusts the word of God. That's what the psalmist is asking. Deal bountifully with me that I may live and keep your words. There's there's an acknowledgement here, isn't there, of his dependence upon the Lord. Bless me, Lord, so that I might keep your word. I don't know about you, but I know me and my own weakness. Sometimes I wonder if if I'm not being blessed, if I'm in suffering, if I'm in trial, if I'm in this... Will I keep his word? So Lord, would you show me favor so that I might keep your word, that I might be strengthened to do so? And there's a sense in which for God to deal bountifully with him is him having the strength to keep God's word. That is to say, since since living by the way in obedience obedience to his word is life-giving, then... It is blessed to be strengthened. To do so is a blessing. And it's the favor of the Lord. It is God's favor 
for him that he can live in obedience to the word because obedience to the word is that which brings blessing. And we see more of this in the next verse as well, don't we? Where he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And, I mean, we should understand that, shouldn't we? I mean, if not for God opening his eyes, he knows that he wouldn't see. Apart from the Lord opening the eyes of the blind, they do not see, they cannot see. They cannot see those spiritual things. So what a plea. What a plea. Open my eyes that I might see. And it's not that God's law is somehow clouded where it needs to be cleaned up. No, it's, it's our own eyes. We are dependent upon the Lord to open them so that we might see those wonders. And we need eyes that are open that we might see this truth because even as the psalmist says that we're sojourners on this earth. That this is the path of God's servant. Sojourning on this earth. This is not our home. We, we live in a world that is often hostile to the word of God. Now I know as soon as I say that, some of us may say, well, doggone it, Chris, it's, it's, it's not that bad here. We still have it pretty good in the United States. We still have many freedoms in this country in which we live when it comes to worshiping the Lord, when it comes to believing God's Word. And you're right. In some sense, we have so many freedoms. But if we don't or we can't see or if we do not believe that we live in a culture that is continuously opposing God and His Word, then we need our eyes open because we're being deceived. We may look to other parts of the world and we see more objective and overt opposition to the church or to the faith or to the Word of God and we think we don't have that here. And you may be right. But sadly, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we don't have that here is because the enemy doesn't need it here. We can go about our merry way. We go to work, we go to school, we go to sporting events, we go to movies. There's not a lot of opposition there. And you're right. For doing those things, there's not a lot of opposition there. But if we don't see it, we're blind. It, it may be more subtle. It may be more sophisticated. It may be layered in a, in a, in a, uh, it may be in a lay, uh, disguised in a layer of comfort and of ease. But there is spiritual warfare taking place. There is a battle for your mind. And there is a battle for your soul. And that is not, um, who's the little chicken guy that says the sky is falling? I don't mean it like that. This is just reality. There's a battle taking place. And part of the enemy's arsenal is a desire that God's word is silenced. So that we can just continue to simply amuse or entertain ourselves to death. That's why this is so important. This is why this is so important. 
That's why the psalmist cries, hide not your commandments from me. Hide not your commandments from me. And he's, he's basing all these pleas not on the fact that he's earned any of these requests. But he's basing them on the fact that he belongs to the Lord. If we were to go back quickly to verse 17 where we began this morning. And we notice how he said it. He said, deal bountifully with your servant. There's an there's a intimacy there. The psalmist is resting all his pleas. He's resting all his prayers and his praises in the truth that he belongs to the Lord. As we've learned in weeks past from the first part of Psalm 119, I'm yours and you are mine. That's why he can say, that's why he can say my, my soul's consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Because he belongs to him. He may not do them all the time, but he longs for them because why? Because they're true, they're right, they're good. He knows, he's, he's convinced that this is the way of life in the midst of the journey of life. He's convinced of it. He, again, he's not arguing to God that he's earned it or that it's owed to him because of his um, obedience but he is doing this. He is reminding the Lord. And I know the Lord doesn't need reminding. But from a human perspective, he's reminding the Lord <clears throat> that he belongs to him. That he's reminding the Lord that he's different than the world around him. And brothers and sisters, we are different than the world around us. We are. And I know to say that, particularly in our culture today... Oh, that's prideful. That's arrogant. No, it's not. It has nothing to do with us. We're different because we've simply received mercy. And we've not received mercy because we've earned it. Because if we'd received mercy because we earned it, it's no longer mercy. It is true that if not for God's grace, we're no different than the world around us. But we are different because we've received mercy. Mercy. Not because we're owed it. Again, R.C. Sproul says it this way, not to quote him again just for the sake of doing so, but he says in a lecture, and it's a wonderful quote, he said, as soon as we think God owes us mercy, we're not thinking about mercy anymore. We've received mercy because God chose to place His favor on us. Not because of anything we've done. But simply because He chose to. And that makes us different. Not to boast in ourselves, for we have nothing to boast about, but to boast in Christ. To boast in Christ. To boast in that one who, while he walked on this earth, he prayed to his Father in this way. And listen to Jesus' own words. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then he goes on to pray, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask you to take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. The psalmist is praying the same thing that Jesus would pray for him hundreds of years later. Isn't that remarkable? And what can we learn? We can learn tons of things from this. But one of them, this is, again, this is not our home. You and I are but sojourners on this earth. We have a home. A city. Whose builder is God. A city prepared for you. This isn't it. And if this is not it, if this is not our home, then why would we turn to earthly things to give us wisdom, to grant us peace, to provide us satisfaction, to bestow life and blessing? Why turn to a program? Why turn to a methodology, to a technique, to find the power that only God's Word is able to provide? Why would we do that? And because we belong to the Lord, the Lord protects us along the way. God's servant is protected by the Lord and His Word. And while there's protection for those who belong to the Lord, there's rebuke for the insolent, for the accursed ones who wander from your commandments, as verse 21 tells us. So there's There's life and blessing in the Lord and there's rebuke and cursing for the arrogant who wander from Him, who reject Him. That's a a serious difference. Life and blessing on the one hand and cursing on the other. Talk about a love your neighbor issue. So what do you mean by that? Well, the church today here in the United States, we're all caught up in of carrying the banner of love your neighbor, aren't we? And yet often, eyes being blind, we've sought to love our neighbor not according to the word of God, but by the counsel and so-called wisdom of the world that we're called to love. Why would we do that? And again, even saying this, that's that's to, to to be one who who is convinced of the truth and to proclaim it, that's not a license to be rude or to be arrogant or to be unkind or to be obstinate or to, as the Scripture calls it, pugnacious or to have a fighting spirit. It's not an excuse to be that way. But we certainly aren't loving our neighbor by our silent approval of things that lead to death and cursing. And there's a way to do that in a godly way. That's one of the things, one of our Sunday school classes is, how how do we live a quiet and godly life while at the same time standing for and proclaiming the truth? It's not always easy. It's not always easy to know how to do that. But this psalm even speaks a little bit about it, doesn't it? Verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt, he says, for for I have kept your testimonies. And then in verse 23, 
Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. The psalmist's hope of protection is found in the Lord. His delight is in the word of the Lord. He asked the Lord to take away the scorn and contempt. And notice, it is both because of and on account of him keeping the Lord's testimonies. That is to say that his plea is this. Lord, take away. Take away that scorn and contempt because I've kept your word. This, this scorn comes from those who, who don't love your law, O oh God, but I do. I'm standing on your word. So as I stand on your word, please take that away. But also, the reason for the scorn is because I actually am standing on the word of God. So it's both because and on account of. This, this psalmist is being persecuted on the journey of, in the journey of life. He's suffering for righteousness' sake. Peter, Peter says it this way. If we were to move all the way into the New Testament, Peter says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now isn't it just amazing that the same truths we find here in the Psalms is the same truth found in the New Testament letters. It almost just seems as if there's one author of this one book. And notice too, in both places, Old Testament, Psalms here, Peter in the New it's both places, it's for righteousness' sake. Suffering for righteousness' sake. Sometimes when we suffer, it's not for righteousness' sake. Sometimes we suffer because it's our own sinfulness. Sometimes we suffer because of our own hearts. Sometimes we are suffering because of the way we go about doing something. You know, sometimes I, we, we act as if it, it, doesn't, it doesn't and shouldn't really matter how I say something because it's the truth. So I'm just going to stand on the truth and if it's the truth, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what kind of collateral damage comes by me saying it in whatever way I want to say it because it's just the truth and so-and-so needs to hear it. But didn't we just read with gentleness and with respect? Having a good conscience? We do what we do with gentleness and respect. In love for our neighbor. Both what we say as well as how we say it. In what spirit do we say it?
And we can do that. We've got the freedom to do that because we can trust the Lord with ourselves. In fact, so much so that even if princes, if even if princes were plotting against us, as he says, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Isn't it interesting? Our first response is usually what? Our first response is usually to fight back. It's usually to fight back. To fight fire with fire, as it were. But oh, may we believe and may we be convinced of it that worldly fire is no match for the Spirit of God. Do we really believe that? Do we trust that? I think we would know if we trust that by seeing how we respond and how we act. Do we go first to the Word of the Lord in prayer? Or do we go first to spit and fire with fire? Shows us what we trust, doesn't it? I mean, the psalmist doesn't say, even though princes are sit, uh, sit plotting against me, my team and my tribe, we are also doing some plotting, and you just wait, because we're about to launch a counterattack that you're not going to believe. You know, you say it like that, and you say, I don't do that. Really? Hmm. But if we examine our hearts, we might find that we do exactly that. But the psalmist says, my first response, I will meditate on your statutes. I'll run to the word of God. There is an active response here. I think a lot of us would go, well, that just means there's no response. No, there is a response. It's just not the response that we do usually. His response is to go directly to the word of God. And trusting in the Spirit of God. I love what James Boyce says here. Um, it's interesting. I haven't read Boyce in quite some time. And I used to quite a bit. And um, I picked him back up in the study of the Psalms. And oh, my heart's just been so encouraged by reading him. I forgot how much I loved him. But at any rate, he's gone with the Lord today. Um, but anyways, he says this. He says, The Holy Spirit is given not to make our study unnecessary, but to make it effective. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is given not to make our study unnecessary, but to make it effective. You see, to be Spirit-led is a wonderful thing, but to be Spirit-led is to be led in the Word of God. And how do we get that? We don't go, oh, you know, I think I'm just going to let the Spirit lead me today. Boy, there's been a lot of bad sermons preached that way. There's been a lot of heresies hatched that way. There's been a lot of lives damaged that way. Because he doesn't work apart from the work, word. He works in and with the word. And in fact, the Spirit causes the psalmist to proclaim, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Proverbs tells us that there is wisdom in many counselors. And indeed, that is true. But no matter how many counselors you have, brothers and sisters, if those counselors are devoid of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, then they are foolish and they are dangerous. Because our counselor is the Word and the Spirit. How many people's faith has been challenged and some even shipwrecked? The new word is deconstructing their faith. 
by the thousands of foolish counselors we too often run to on podcasts and social media. Brothers and sisters, I say this because I don't want to be, not because I want to be the only voice you hear. Please don't hear me say that. I say this because I love you more than any podcaster or any social media famous person could ever love you. Do not run to them. Run to Christ. Run to His Word. And not to those places. That's not to say there aren't some wise ones and wonderful ones. Be discerning. Be discerning. And run to the Word of God. Run to Jesus and find Him sufficient. Run to Jesus and find Him enough. I I love this story. It's not a story. Well, it is a story, but it's a true story. Remember Philip? When he said to Jesus, he said to him, he said, Lord, show us the Father. And, And the way that he says it, he says, Jesus, show us the Father and it is enough for us. It's as if, it's as if Philip is coming to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, show us the God of heaven. Show us the one who created all things. Show us the God of our fathers and then that's enough for us. We'll be okay. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? It's remarkable. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see what Jesus is saying? What a remarkable statement. The one who lived for us, the one who obeyed the law perfectly in our stead, the one who made every right decision. Can you believe that? And they say, no, I can't believe that. You better. The one who did all things right and good. So the one who lived for us, the one who died for us, the one who gave himself for us, the one who cleansed us from all unrighteousness, says, I I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So in other words, what? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know what Jesus is saying to Philip? And you know what Jesus is saying to you and what he's saying to me? It is simply and profoundly this. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. Jesus is saying, I am enough. Brothers and sisters, run to Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven... We do thank you for your word and we thank you that while we walk this journey of life as members of your kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of man that we not left on our own but even as sojourners you've given us your word and your spirit. May we run to Jesus and may we trust him. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen.